This morning, we're going to read from Psalm 6. We, we do intend to continue the series on Galatians, but we'll uh, wait for a more uninterrupted stretch of time to resume that. And so this morning, we're going to um, read from Psalm 6. Our text will be the verses 4 through 5, but we'll read the whole psalm together. Psalm 6, to the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Shemanith, a psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there was no remembrance of you. And she all who will give you praise. I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. And our text again is verses 4 and 5. Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love, for in death there is no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Sometimes you don't miss something until you go without for a while. Maybe you experienced that the first time that you moved out of home. Initially, it's very exciting to be able to live on your own, to make your own decisions. But the glamour soon wears off. You begin to realize how many things you took for granted that you don't need to do without, like your mother's cooking, for example. She doesn't iron your clothing anymore. She doesn't remind you to do the stuff that you were supposed to remember to do yourself. As time goes on, you begin to miss other things as well. And you start to realize how much of your life living at home you actually took for granted. So they have a saying in English to reflect that. It says that absence makes the heart grow fonder. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. It's when you're away from something that you realize what it really was worth. And and that principle is also true in our faith life. There are many things in our faith life that we take for granted. Take, for instance, our relationship with God. This relationship comes to us in the form of what the Bible calls a covenant. God confirmed that covenant with us at our baptism 
He legally adopted us as his children. He promised to be our God. He promised to forgive us all of our sins and to declare us righteous in Jesus Christ. And he promised to share his power with us so that we could actually overcome evil in our lives. And at the end of our lives, he promises that we will inherit heavenly glory. Now, if you take these promises seriously, they are life-changing. There are no greater promises that any human being could ever inherit than these. There's nothing more that you could ever desire from life than that. There's no greater call that anyone could ever receive than the call to believe in these promises. But the fact is that as Christians, we often take a set and forget mentality to these things. It's a little bit like your Wi-Fi password. Probably most of you um, have not memorized your Wi-Fi password. You just needed it at one point, you stuck it into your device, and then you had what you wanted, which was access. So you forgot about the password. You don't need to look at it again, right? And sometimes we treat faith in exactly the same way. We make sure that we believe the right things. We make sure that we tick all of the boxes in the beginning. We make sure that we profess our faith. And then we stop experiencing these things as a lived reality. We start to get distracted by the day-to-day challenges and events of our lives. And sometimes it takes a crisis, a crisis of faith to make us rediscover the truth of what we knew. Sometimes we need to have a sense of God's distance before we appreciate His presence. And that's a little bit like what's happening in our psalm this morning. In our psalm this morning, King David seems to be undergoing some sort of a crisis of faith as well. The psalm, if you read it, doesn't seem to really spell out or specify what his problem is. But as you read the psalm, it becomes clear that sin, in any case, was at least part of his problem. Sin, by its very nature, isolates. And David feels isolated. He feels oppressed. That's clear from the psalm. As he reflects on the various challenges that he's experiencing in his life, he realizes that he feels separated from God. And in this psalm, he's asking God to turn back to him. He prays to God to release him from his sense of isolation. And like so many of the psalms, his prayer becomes a psalm that was meant to be sung by others. So this psalm is an invitation to join David in prayer. But why should we do that? Why should God listen to David? Why should God listen to anyone at all? This morning we will consider these questions together. Our text teaches us that when sin isolates you, call on God. He created you to show you steadfast love. That's verse 4. And He created you to give Him endless praise. That's verse 5. So, again, as you read this psalm, it becomes clear that David feels isolated from God because of sin. But he does not specify which sin. This is not like Psalm 51, for example, where I had a very, very clear um, origin that was very clearly written as a prayer of repentance after David committed adultery. We don't know exactly what life circumstances prompted him to write this psalm, Psalm 6. And um, 
We don't know what the issue was. In fact, David doesn't even use the word sin anywhere in the psalm. But clearly God is angry with him. In verse 1, David says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. God never becomes angry with people for no reason. God is not capricious in that sense, unpredictable or random. He's not vindictive. So there's a reason for this. He is clearly angry with David. Otherwise, David would not have written that first verse. And it's possible that David initially did not even sense God's anger. But at some point, he began to feel troubled. Maybe his conscience was bothering him, and that led to his self-examination. And as he examined himself, he, he became aware of his own sinfulness. And that is why he does not protest against God's displeasure. If you read the psalm, he's not arguing with God about the point. He's not protesting He knows that God has a right to be displeased with him. God is the creator. God is the judge. God is the one to whom all must give account. God always does what is right. So David does not argue. Instead, he confesses. And so should we. By nature, none of us are righteous in the eyes of God. By nature, all of us are contaminated by our sins We're contaminated with the original sin that we inherited and we're contaminated by the expression of that sin in our day-to-day actual sins, sins of thought, sins of word, sins of deed. It's good to be aware of those sins when we pray and never to come before God with a sense of entitlement. Now, there's no specific outstanding sin that David mentions, at least not in this psalm. But his circumstances have caused him to re-examine his own attitude in the light of God and of his word. And and as he works his way through that, he becomes aware how far he falls short of, of God. Romans 3 says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this psalm, Psalm 6, expresses a little bit of that awareness. David senses his sin has isolated him from God. He feels separated. He feels spiritually lonely. Loneliness is frightening. Especially here because in the Bible, the presence of God is often associated with life. Think about those marvelous words of Psalm 36. And you is the fountain of life. And the opposite is true as well. Outside of God, there's only darkness. So, so when... When David says that he feels separated from God, this is not a small thing. This is, so to speak, an existential crisis for him. He's lonely. He's scared. He feels out of touch. He feels separated from the God of life. Now, how how can we deduce that? How do we know that? Um, a lot of your conclusions from this psalm have to be deduced from what he says. And, and, and you can deduce his loneliness from verse 4. He says, turn, O Lord, deliver my life. He feels like God. Obviously, he, feels he would not say, turn, O Lord, if he did not feel that God had turned away from him. David senses that God has turned away from him, and it bothers him terribly. He wrestles with it. Now, that 
in and of itself already shows that there is a relationship between God and David, even if David feels separated from this point in time. And you need to listen. This is a very important point, if you think about it, because it could be that you two, at this point, are, are struggling in your relationship with God. Maybe you feel separated from God. Maybe this is causing you to re-examine particular attitudes and mindsets that you have held for a while. And maybe at this point in time, you're not even sure what is causing your particular problems. Maybe you're struggling with doubt in your walk with God. Now, the point is that David's example can teach us that struggling the struggle alone does not mean that you're lost. The very fact that the struggle exists to begin with shows, demonstrates the underlying relationship with God, that, that it is real. Because if that relationship was not real, then there would be no struggle. You're not going to struggle with a sense of God's absence if you never had a relationship with God to begin with, right? Right? So, from that perspective, to experience the displeasure of God might actually be His blessing because it shakes you out of your complacency. It points you back to God as He has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. It is, in that sense, God reaching out to you, even if it may not feel that way at first. Unbelievers don't have these kinds of struggles. And that's simply because they don't have that relationship with God either. They're unaffected by any of the kinds of struggles that you see in this psalm. Superficially, their, their lives can seem easy. Maybe it's even made you jealous sometimes. The psalmist struggled with that too. And in Psalm 37, he talks about that very point. These people seem to have it so easy. Life is so straightforward for them. Why can't it be that simple for us sometimes? But the fact is that they're in great danger. They're just not aware of it. This danger reminds us of the danger that, the, that faced the passengers on the Titanic. You might remember the story of the Titanic, the largest ocean liner in service at that time. And as most of you probably know, it hit an iceberg on its maiden voyage and sank early in the morning of, the, of April 15th, 1912. Many of the people on board did not realize the true extent and seriousness of what was happening. In fact, according to one source, quote, Quartermaster George Rowe was so unaware of the emergency that after the evacuation had started, he phoned the bridge from his watch station to ask why he had just seen a lifeboat go past. Now, whether or not he realized what was going on, the point is that he was in great danger. If he was calm, he was calm not because he understood what was going on, but because he was ignorant. And that's the case for all unbelievers today. Just because unbelievers don't share in the struggles depicted in the psalm does not mean that they are better off. David's relationship with God is real, and that is why he is so terrified when that relationship is disrupted. He is languishing, it says in verse 2. What does that word mean? Literally, it means that he is becoming feeble. His sense of separation from God has made him lose weight. 
So this is a, 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 an ongoing problem. He's troubled. He's terrified. He has that sinking feeling. Have you ever had that before, that someone gave you a, a piece of really bad news? And you remember how you just felt like the sinking feeling or maybe like somebody poured cold water over you. That's what he feels. That's what's being reflected here. It's gotten to be so bad, he can't even pray anymore. Look at verse 3. In verse 3b, he says, O Lord, but you, O Lord, how long? And there's a hyphen there. He can't, he's almost incoherent. Doesn't it seem ironic that the times when you need prayer the most are also the times that it is hardest to pray? You ever noticed that before? That it's, it's hard to verbalize prayer under difficult circumstances? It's not that you don't want to, it's just that you just can't in the moment. It's almost impossible to, to verbalize something coherent under these circumstances, and that's why we need to pray for each other and with each other. That's one thing that we, we maybe don't do very often as church communities, friends praying with each other. We expect the office bearers to do it when they come on a visit, but, but how often do you talk with a, a friend about something difficult and then at the end say something like, you know what, we, we've just talked about a lot of, of difficult, heavy things. Let's bring it before the Lord in prayer together. Th- that's what we should do. That's the one way we can help each other in the one way that matters most. What's also interesting here is that David does not pray for relief from his symptoms. Maybe if we felt this way, we would be tempted to pray for symptom relief. We would pray to God to make us feel better. And David doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that because he realizes there is an underlying reason why he senses God's displeasure. And so, in verse 4... He prays about that. He prays to God to turn back to him. He needs God to return to him. But at the same time, he, he understands he doesn't have any right to do so. If there was some sort of a pre-existing right that he could refer to, then you would expect him to do that. You would expect him to say something like, God, you need to turn back because I am blameless. Or God, you need to turn back because I am the king of Israel. But... If any of these things would have made a difference, surely he would have mentioned them. But he doesn't do that. He has no inherent right to draw on. The only thing that he has going for him, the only thing he can point to, is God's steadfast love. He says, save me, verse 4, for the sake of your steadfast love. Now that phrase, um, steadfast love, is actually a special word in the Bible. It is the love that God shows to people with whom he has a covenant relationship. And there's different ways of translating that word. Uh, Different translations handle it in different ways. Loving kindness, steadfast love, unfailing love, sometimes even mercy, and so on. The loyal love that God shows to people who are in a covenant relationship with him. The steadfast love is God's commitment to his people. And David is reminding God of that commitment. He's reminding God of his promises. He's saying, Lord, what about this covenant that you made with me? You made a promise. What about your promise to me? I'm holding you to to your promise. 
And it's actually a really remarkable verse in the psalm because David himself has not been loyal to God. Remember, he's calling on God because he feels isolated. He feels isolated because he's sinful. Even though David has not been loyal, he appeals to God's loyalty. In other words, he's saying God should respond to him because of who God is, not because of who David is. He's saying God should respond to him because of who God is, not because of who David is. That is remarkable. Why should God love him in the first place? And God does love him. Why? It's not because of who David is, but because of who God is. And the same is true for us today. Why does God love us? Not because we are such great people in and of ourselves, but because we are his people. It's not because of who we are, but because of who he is and what he says about us. That divine love comes out even more strongly in the New Testament. In Romans 5 verse 8, it says there that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. You think about that for a moment. If God loved you before you were born, if God loved you before you could respond in faith, if God loves you today even when you fall into sin, then God's love doesn't depend on what you do. It doesn't depend on you. God's love depends on Christ. It depends on his accomplishments. It depends on his works. It depends on his faithfulness. It depends on his blood. It depends on him. It's all him. Christ died for sinners like us. And so when sin isolates you, what do you do? You call on God. Because Christ knows what that isolation means. When Christ went to the cross, he experienced the isolation that sin causes with a hellish intensity. Far worse than something, anything that David could have ever imagined. Jesus understands better than anyone else. And all of that already happened before we were born, before we were even able to understand the gospel, before we could respond to it in faith. David prayed, save me for the sake of your steadfast love. We can pray the same prayer with so much more confidence because we can look back on the life of Christ and see how seriously God means that steadfast love. Now, God is serious about his steadfast love towards us, but are we serious about our love towards him? From our side, we should examine our motives as well. When sin isolates you, you should call on God but you also should question your own motives in praying for relief and forgiveness. Why do you feel oppressed? Is it because you really do feel isolated from God? Is it because you really do realize that you have been taking his favor for granted? Or is it because you feel sorry for yourself? Because you realize your particular sin has caused you problems in your life and you want to get rid of those problems. People do sometimes pray because of the consequences of their sins instead of the sin itself. Their sin gets them into trouble and then they pray for relief. In the Bible, King Saul was one good example of that. And there have been others. But that prayer has nothing to do with repentance. 
We should always ask ourselves, what are we praying for? Why are we praying it? What would happen if God answered your prayer? What if He were to make all things well again? Would life go on as it did before? Would you go on as you did before? Or would you live your life with a whole different meaning? We've seen so far that King David appeals to God's love, but in verse 5, he also asks the question, and Sheol, who will give you praise? In other words, the, the dead can't praise you. And saying that he, that he is implying that if God restores him, he will live a life of praise before God. And that is exactly the response that he should have. Because God created him for a life of praise. That's the only reason that he created you as well. We're going to look at that in our second point. The ultimate isolation of sin is death. And King David wrestles with that. He says in verse 5, In death there was no remembrance of you. And Sheol, who will give you praise? What is Sheol? Well, the word Sheol here and in many other places in the Old Testament refers to the grave. It can refer to different things sometimes in context, but most of the time Sheol simply means the grave. It's the place where both believers and unbelievers go. That is to say, they all die, their bodies get buried, and those whose bodies are buried are not able to praise God with their voices anymore. And that, that makes sense, right? If your body is in the grave, then at least during the time that you're in, in the grave, you cannot praise God with your voice. And the psalmist is saying, if I die, that is one less voice in praise of God. Now you might wonder, well, didn't he believe in the resurrection? Of course he did. There was some, there was some awareness that there was life after death. Think of the closing words of Psalm 16, for instance. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So he knew, but still, from a purely earthly point of view, death is tragic. Again, King David is saying, if I die, that is one less voice in praise of God. The purpose of life is to praise God. It took God's dis. God's perceived displeasure to make this clear to David, and that changes the nature of his prayer. Now he's not only praying anymore because he's afraid of being separated from God. He prays because he's afraid that God will receive less praise if he is separated from God. You see, he's progressed in his thinking. He's not just afraid about himself anymore, but he, he's afraid that God will receive less praise and that's an important point. He's worried about God's praise and God's reputation. He's starting to see God's glory. He doesn't want God to have any less praise than he could possibly have. That's a whole new level of, of thinking in your walk of faith when you get to that point. And verse 5 of this psalm challenges us on that very point. It asks us, why do you pray these things? Why do you want to be relieved? What is your purpose? 
in praying? Is it just about you? Or is it also about the Lord and His reputation? Why do you want to be restored to the community of faith? This psalm is written from the perspective of isolation. The isolation challenges us. It, it, it makes us ask these questions, and in that it points us to Jesus Christ. He underwent the ultimate isolation because of our sins. He was sent out of the city gates. He was turned back, just like the psalmist enemies were in the end. He died alone on a cross, abandoned by everyone. He experienced the wrath of God. But why did he do that? Why did he do that? Think, why did he do that? Did he do that so that we could continue in our own isolation? So that we could continue in our sin? So that we could continue following our goals, our plans, our desires, our dreams without ever submitting any of that to God? Did he do it so that we could form a community of like-minded people with shared interests and a common background? Or did he die for something much more profound than that? Through a sense of isolation, David understands the reason for life. It is praise. In death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? This experience of isolation has taught him that beyond all of these other things, there is the real reason why he wants to live and the real reason why he needs to live, and that is God himself. So the psalm is a cry to God to hold on to him in spite of his sin. And it goes even further. The psalm, in a very subtle way, is a cry for the resurrection. He's saying, Lord, if your relationship with me means anything, it cannot end in the grave. It cannot. You have to hold on to me. You can't let me go. Not now, not ever. So in his prayer, David expresses a deep, unvoiced longing for the resurrection of the dead. But it took his experience of isolation to bring him to that point. That's clear from this psalm that true repentance involves a genuine desire to make God and his praise the central focus of existence, both in this life and the life to come. Now, it could be that none of this resonates with you. If that's the case, you need to ask yourself why. Could it be that you feel that you have nothing to praise Him for? And if so, could it be that you've never fully understood what true forgiveness is? Is that perhaps because you've never understood what true repentance is? But then, why do you pray? Why do you sing psalms? Why did you come here this morning? What were you expecting? This psalm confronts us with all of those questions and as such it serves as a thermometer of our own spiritual condition. If we are spiritually sick, if we feel isolated from God, we need to come to Him. But if we don't even realize our own condition, then we're not just sick, then we're in denial. That's a much worse place to be. And then this psalm is a wake-up call to us. Psalm 6 is one of the first of the so-called penitential psalms, the psalms that teach us how to pray for the forgiveness of sins. 
if we're unable to pray or to sing these psalms, if they, they don't resonate with us, if the thought of the resurrection does not fill us with a deep sense of longing, then something is wrong. And then we need to take this opportunity to examine our own spiritual state. And then we need to ask ourselves if we've really understood the gospel at all. By the time that we get to the last three verses of the psalm, King David has had some sort of a breakthrough. We never find out what it is, but between verses 7 and 8, there's a marked change in tone. And there's a real sense of assurance that, that comes forward in verse 8. And a sense of confidence that God has heard him. He knows he is no longer estranged from God. And, and now the shame of isolation is, is, is rolled onto his enemies. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. And in verse 8, he publicly separates himself from them. He's saying, I belong with God. How can he be so confident? Because he knows, because he believes God's promises. God has worked that awareness in him through his circumstances, as difficult as they were. God has reassured him that he holds on to him. So the psalmist has come to understand that God loves him, that God has created him for a life of praise. In the covenant, we may hold on to that same sense of awareness. The psalm invites us to prayerfully work towards that same sense of resolution. It says to us that in Christ we can. And then... There is no doubt. Then there is assurance. Then there is peace. May that peace carry us forward into the week that lies ahead. Amen.